Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and welcome to listeners, wherever you may be, to the fifth episode of the sixth series of Compliance Clarified. My name is Alexander Robson and I'm the Managing Editor of Regulatory Intelligence here in London. Today, I'm joined by Lindsay Rogerson, Senior Editor for European Financial Regulation, also in London, and by Henry Engler, Senior Editor in New York. And we are here to discuss the 27th Conference of the Parties, better known as COP27, and specifically the impact on financial services. Securities regulators published two consultations at COP27 last week, which must be taken together and are designed to foster fair and efficient carbon markets. One deals with voluntary carbon credits and the other deals with so-called CCMs, compliance carbon markets, and aims to assist with the establishment and supervision of national governmental schemes. Existing CCMs include schemes such as the European Emissions Trading System and the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, RGGI, which operates within about a dozen states along the east coast of the United States. Lindsay, perhaps I could start with you. What does this all mean and what are the recommendations? Hi, Alex. And yes, what does this mean? It means a lot, actually. It, I mean, this is really significant that we have the international securities regulators stepping in at this point and saying, hang on, if we are going to do carbon markets, we want to make sure that they are regulated from, from this get-go. Obviously, the carbon markets exist already, but what they want to do um, is exactly as you said, get those guardrails around them now. So if you are an investment bank, an asset management firm, if you are a hedge fund, if you are a trading floor, if you are an exchange, basically if you're a settlement service, you really are going to have to engage with these very comprehensive and incredibly well thought through. I've really not tried to sort of say, woohoo, or IOSCO have done a, a great job here, but they really have gone through all of the permutations and all of the issues that could come up. And there are questions for the industry about whether you think that IOSCO have got the right. There's also a bunch of toolkits in there for supervisors to start thinking about. But actually, I would say at this moment in time, the most critical thing are those 11 questions, especially in the voluntary carbon market paper. So what do they ask? Well, one of the things they ask is, what is a carbon credit? Is it a commodity, which is the way the US is going? Or is it a security? And then from that, um, that obviously feeds the regulatory structure that will go around it. But when these things then hit the secondary markets and they become derivatives, oh, you can put a, a spot price against one. What IOSCO are saying is the infrastructure that we have elsewhere to deal with these things when they are commodities or securities in the financial markets, that needs to be applied to these new things, which aren't new things, as I said, but the new wave of these carbon credits. And so I cannot underscore enough the importance for firms to really get their heads around, really engage with this consultation over the next three months. You might find actually that you were not aware of all the permutations that that are covered off in the paper. And so you really need to have a team and a compliance team as well sitting down, working out 
what your view is so you can input and then going from there. I just also want to highlight a couple of things because when I said that, you know, they've really thought through all of the details about this. So a couple of the questions relate to blockchain, putting carbon credits on the blockchain. Well, some blockchains, as we all know, can be incredibly carbon intensive. So the paper asks, you know, should we even go down this road of tokenization and using blockchains if if it's going to consume more energy and more carbon when that's not what this is supposed to be about? So there, you know, there's really fundamental um, questions. And another one deals with, as we all know, IOSCO lent its support or indicated that might lend its support to the development of the international sustainability standards that came out of COP26 and are currently almost there. They've been consulted on and they're going to create that global baseline, which is so important in terms of reporting. As I said, last year, IOSCO indicated that they would be supportive of the ISBI standards. This year, in this consultation, they're saying, well, we know there's there there is an attempt to create standards around uh, voluntary carbon markets. Uh, that's the Integrity Council um, for Voluntary Carbon Markets, which was born out of the Task Force for Voluntary Carbon Markets, which was co-chaired by Sandra Charter and Mark Carney. That was a COP26. So they've been in the background for the last year trying to work on standards. I also are now saying, well, should we throw our weight behind that? Because at the moment, there is an array of different accreditors and registries and everything. A single registry, that's another question that's in here. So I'm not trying to confuse and, and bamboozle our listeners, Alex, but I just wanted to really underscore that this is a really, really comprehensive consultation here, which will have huge implications for what happens with voluntary carbon markets for financial services firms in the coming years. And so you really cannot miss your opportunity to engage with it. Analysis of the 43 biggest banks in the net zero banking alliance, which commits members to align their portfolios with the goals of the Paris Agreement and keep warming to within 1.5 degrees centigrade, found that just 16% had set interim targets for 2030. A UN report in October said, and I quote, in 2020, combined adaptation and mitigation finance flows fell at least $17 billion short of the $100 billion pledged annually to developing countries. Lindsay, this doesn't exactly appear to be very optimistic. You're absolutely right. Those numbers are, quite frankly, depressing and certainly going in the wrong direction. But I would say that they're, they are not the whole picture. And it's important to take a step back and judge on the 12 months. So as I said, last year, COP26 laid the framework for a global baseline, these ISBI, so-called ISBI standards. They're in the works. You know, we're, we're hoping to have them next year. And that will be huge in terms of everybody kind of reporting to the same data set, even though obviously the regions, Europe in particular, the SCC, as I'm sure Henry will come on to say, are... are are tweaking and having their own versions, there will be an underlying data set at the bottom that, that draws on, on, on those. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing I would say is that um, last year, 
the Secretary General of IOSCO, Antonio Guerreros, said, we're actually just not going to take firms' words for it anymore. We are going to start checking your homework. And so this year at COP27, what you've seen is the actual realisation of those checks that are coming in. So for example, there was a a UN, he created a UN high-level expert group, and they produced a report which is, uh, which is entitled Integrity Matters. I will put everything I'm talking about in the show notes so people can can find them. So that has various recommendations. It rec- recommendation, I would say recommendation three and recommendation four are the wrong way around. If you you know, recommendation three is about voluntary carbon markets. Recommendation four is about transition plans. Now, transmission plans are huge. And they are happening and they're basically saying everybody needs a transition plan and then, you know, everyone should have one. So there's that element of, you know, starting to say you can't just have the words. You actually have to have the the numbers and the story, et cetera, to go with it. A couple of other things just very quickly that might not seem relevant to financial markets at first, but they will be hugely significant. There are a couple of check your homework things that are being put in place by by the UN The first one is they're using satellites to spot methane leaks. Why is this important? This is important because the US led actually at COP26 on getting a deal to reduce methane, which nobody is getting anywhere near doing. It really needs to be stepped up. Anybody reporting under the SFDR in Europe will have to know their methane numbers from next, well, this year, next year to report them. So methane is it's hugely significant in helping get greenhouse gas emissions down by 2030. This satellite, what it will do is um, it will do two things. It will alert the governments and companies where they are responsible for methane leaks. However, it doesn't stop there. There will be a short window for firms to fix the things themselves. And I do mean short. It's kind of like about 40 to 70 days before that information is made public. So that will bring in the NGOs, et cetera, to help police that. And just also to back check what people's numbers. The other one is also satellites. It's um, forestry. So a lot of the, for example, we we're just talking about voluntary carbon markets and the, and the government equivalent of that. A lot of that needs checking, as we know from Brazil. The, it, the satellite pictures are the best way to keep people honest in terms of whether the forest is there, whether the forest is growing, et cetera. And so the checks that Financial firms and the likes of McKinsey have been calling for for a while are are now starting to come through. So that's a very significant step. And then the other thing I I didn't want to skip over that has been agreed at COP because it it will be significant in future is this clause or template clause for the International Capital Markets Association. So it's not debt cancellation, but what it will do is it will pause debt repayments if a country uh, suffers a typhoon, a hurricane a flood so that governments can channel the money to. So it's a measure that in theory should hopefully stop defaults down the road in sovereign debt by pausing those repayments so the money can be redirected. Thank you. Henry, this might be a good time to talk about the steps that the SCC has taken, and they're big, to regulate um, ESG disclosures. Yes, well, the the big one that we're all waiting for, thanks, Alex, is the SEC's um, climate disclosure uh, rule, which um, they initially proposed earlier in the year. It got a ton of commentary across the board from industries and academics and lobbying groups. And so the SEC is now taking all of that commentary into account in finalizing a rule on climate disclosure. 
the timing is, of course, a bit uncertain. Uh, I think the earliest that we would expect to see a final rule is by the end of this year, more likely next year, uh, early next year. And, you know, as we've discussed in the past, this is um, quite a contentious issue here in the States, uh, particularly among industry groups, because one of the components of the SEC's initial rule, which would require companies to provide information on, is their scope three emissions. Uh, In other words, emissions along a company's value chain. And those are difficult to get your head around. It's difficult to capture because the data is not easily obtainable. And so there's been a lot of uh, back and forth now, a lot of debate about, well, will the SEC include scope three as a requirement when it rolls out its final rule? Or will it make certain modifications to it to make it easier for companies? So that's that's really what we're waiting on right now. Um, it's 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 the biggest, most significant uh, regulatory proposal on climate change uh, to come, certainly in in our generation. And how does this look after the midterm elections? What sparing will they have? Do you think? Well, the midterm elections surprised everyone. We did not get the quote-unquote red wave that many Republicans were expecting and many Democrats were fearful of. Indeed, we got quite the opposite. Um, We got a victory for the Democrats in the U.S. Senate. So they continue to hang on to the Senate, which is critical. The composition now is 50-50 in terms of Republicans and Democrats. But because we have Joe Biden in, in the White House, um, any sort of legislation that, re- that goes down to a 50-50 tie will then, the Vice President Kamala Harris will step in and, and vote uh, to break that tie. But we still have one Senate race left to be decided in Georgia. And that is going into a runoff in early December. So if the Republicans capture that seat, they have an incumbent there, then they have control of the Senate. And in the House, it's the final makeup of the House of Representatives is is still to be decided. There are a bunch of races in California that are uh, still being counted But it looks as though the Republicans will capture the House, control of the House, by a very narrow margin. I just uh, looked this morning, and they're projecting 219 seats for the Republicans, 216 seats for the Democrats. I mean, that's hardly um, a red wave. Yeah, Yeah. very tight. So what does that mean for financial regulation or the SEC's proposal? Really not much at all, Alex. I I think ultimately what this will mean is that if the House is controlled by the Republicans, you will, of course, have certain committees led by Republican congressmen. And so the two big ones for financial services is the House Banking Committee and the House Financial Services Committee. So what that's likely to mean for any sort of you know, large U.S. bank or a U.S. regulatory agency is that they will probably have to make more visits to Capitol Hill, sit in front of these committees, and listen to Republicans 
grill them on climate change and ESG issues and how this is not part of their remit. This is something that they should stop and that'll be it. So the Jamie Dimons of the world and Gary Gensler will have to endure uh, the head of you know the House Banking Committee uh, throughout the next term. But given such a slim majority, there's nothing there's nothing that the Republican Party can really do to affect any rulemaking change or legislative change. So it's I think what we'll see is really sort of a lot of you know, complaining and hand-wringing over these agencies and banks in their efforts to reduce carbon emissions. I think the more important concern, Alex, is what could happen in the courts. And there's been, I mean, there is a lot of speculation that the SEC's climate disclosure rule will be challenged in the U.S. courts because various industry groups such as the Chamber of Commerce uh, do not believe the SEC has the authority uh, to propose uh, regulations in this area. So that could slow down the process, tie everything up for you know quite some time. Uh, but from Congress, it's I think we'll just hear a lot of complaining and noise making, but substantively, nothing will emerge. Well, I suppose that sounds almost like progress if, you know, for those who <laughs> think these things are important and want them to proceed. And I certainly right. think that's the position on this side of the Atlantic, that there'll be at least for legislation and regulation of ESG related issues that, you know, that can perhaps go ahead, proceed at right. the pace that was originally hoped, which almost certainly wouldn't have been the case, one thinks, with a Republican Congress yeah. and Senate. Lindsay, what's next? We've got the UK's green labels, the EU's corporate sustainability reporting directive. Yeah, Alex. So out with COP, obviously, things continue apace. So in the UK, we had the launch of two things. We had the UK government's transition plan disclosure framework. And there's a consultation that goes along with that, that it explains how you're supposed to go about creating those transition plans. So the UK, it's a legal requirement to have a transition plan now. So that's beyond financial services firms. Everyone has to engage with that. At the same time, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK has finally revealed the details of its version of the EU's Sustainable Financial Disclosure Regulation, um, which I mentioned earlier. So it's actually received a fair bit of praise around the definition. So these are going to create product labels. So it was never intended that the EU's product labels would end up being called Article 6, Article 8, Article 9, which means nothing to anyone. That's where they are. In the UK, they've gone for... Um, a sustainable focus, sustainable improvers, and sustainable impact. So what that means is your focus funds will be your already green. Your improvers will be those firms that need the funding to transition. So that's those ones. Your impact could be anything from uh, funding clean tech. That's, that's the technology to, as yet unproven, to suck carbon out of the air. Uh, far more likely it will be in those reforestation schemes and other things like that. But so those are the UK labels. That consultation is open. People should engage with it. And then just last week, the EU passed its corporate sustainability reporting directive, as you said. So this is the other piece of the SFDR. 
So the SFDR only related to financial firms, asked them to gather a whole bunch of data, which the it was a bit cart before horse because the firms, their investee companies that they were supposed to get that data from didn't have a requirement to produce it. This is now um, passed. It will be reality from January 2024. It will require about 50,000 firms eventually to disclose a whole bunch of uh, sustainability and human rights and diversity, et cetera, data. Important one here, as I've mentioned before on earlier uh, podcasts, this is extraterritorial. So if you are, if you have a large European subsidiary, you're going to get caught by this no matter where in the world you are based. So everyone kind of needs to pay attention and get ready and get set for that. And the final thing I want to I, I want to say is is the one Henry and I always end up at is you need the staff to be able to do this. So you need to be upskilling your staff because there just aren't enough staff out there to hire. ESG jobs are and ESG compliance jobs are um, coming out of premium. I, I do want to mention that the Irish um, have launched during their Sustainability Week. They launched the what they say is a world first, and I checked, and I genuinely think it is. ESG training course for specifically targeted act compliance professionals. So you are going to have to look, boards need to be looking not just at their transition plan, not just at the regulations, not just at replying to consultations, but they need to be getting those staff in place now or none of this is going to come to pass for them. Lovely. Thank you. Uh, Henry, any closing thoughts? I think, again, sort of just thinking about what could emerge as roadblocks for climate regulation here. Uh, There are two cases now in front of the Supreme Court, and they just started uh, hearing the arguments. I believe it was early last week. One involves the Federal Trade Commission, which is the big U.S. regulator on antitrust issues. And the other involves the SEC itself. And in both suits in both cases, the plaintiffs are challenging the authority of both agencies in terms of, you know, putting forward regulation that they feel are outside of the scope of their, you know, or their remit or their, you know, their legal authority. Earlier this year, the S- um, the courts backed a challenge to the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, limiting its power to control carbon emissions or or propose rules on reducing carbon emissions at uh, uh, U.S. power plants. So the legal experts are watching these cases very closely because to the extent that the court, which has a conservative majority, takes the view that, yes, we agree that these federal agents agencies uh, should not have as much power in, 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 in proposing uh, future rules and regulations as they do now, then that could be a real setback. That could be a real setback, not just for the SEC and its climate uh, initiatives, but for other uh, federal agencies as well. So we won't, from, from what I've read, we won't get a decision from the Supreme Court on these two recent Uh, cases until probably uh, next spring at the earliest or or June. But uh, again, I think the bigger risks for U.S. regulation in these areas 
will come from the courts rather than from Congress. That seems an appropriate time to bring today's proceedings to a close. Thank you, Lindsay and Henry, for your thoughts today. And until next time. Thanks, Alex. See you next time, Henry. Thanks very much. Compliance Clarified. A podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.